Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here, we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in His love. We are grateful to have you listen in. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. All right, we are going to be continuing through our sermon series on the book of Esther. Um, and we're nearing the end of the sermon series to enter into a different sermon series soon. But that doesn't mean that the Lord is not with us in the midst of it. And so could you guys open up your Bibles with me to Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7. Man, I hope y'all are doing well. Today is beautiful. This is gorgeous. It's beautiful weather. Those clouds look majestic. Anyway, Esther chapter 7. Esther is before the book of Job, after the book of Nehemiah, a couple books before Psalm. Esther chapter 7. I'm reading from the ESV. If you guys wanted to read from the NRSV, the NIV, I think anything is fine. Just try to follow along with me. We're not rising together uh, in as a corporate body right now for worship, but I pray that we would have our hearts and our minds and our um, souls attentive to the reading of God's holy and perfect word. If y'all are not paying attention right now, is the time to sit up from your beds and pay attention. This is the word of the Lord. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, As they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said again to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the queen, before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was, or, sorry, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence? In my own house, as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus came, gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? 
Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is in the month of Sivan on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces to, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in their own script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force or any, or of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? Abba, we are really rolling with the uh, punches uh, every single week. And I just pray, God, right now that in this space where service is being recorded, Father God, I pray that your, your spirit of protection would just fill every single room right now, God. There is no place for anything other than your presence in this house. So in Jesus' name. May anything and all things that are not of you be gone in the name of Jesus. Abba, we thank you for an opportunity to pray and worship together. Lord, we thank you for your glory. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your son. Abba, I pray that you would be with us, God, that you would be with us and that your spirit would lead us in the direction of your favor, of, of your, not the direction of your favor in terms of prosperity, Lord, but in the direction of your will, God, what you favor. Father, I just pray that as we listen to what your word is about in the book of Esther, God, that we will look ahead to the things of you. Jesus, I pray for every single room, that every single person in listening to this prayer inhabits. I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would be made known in that room. Father God, that every single member of our congregation whether or not they are listening, that they would be able to be reminded of you right now in this very second. Holy Spirit, that you would make yourself known to your people. We pray against anything, any and all distractions that keep us from you, Lord. Take us to the next level with you. We love you so much and we give you glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right. The title of this sermon is Had They Not. Had They Not. Had They Not. It's about to get really exciting, okay? This is probably one of the most, like, lengthwise or, or story-wise, this is probably the, like the pinnacle of excitement and motion and action, right? Just to remind everybody, for those of us who might not have been there last week or whatever it may be, just to remind everybody, uh, the context before this, this chapter was that Esther had just won over the king's favor. She did really well. She had another banquet and he said, what do you want? She said, I would like to have a feast for you one more time. And so, you know, Esther asked to have them at another banquet. Flattery to flattery by suggesting that she wants to honor Cersei's with a banquet, appealing to his ego. It works like a charm. She makes it so that the king can't refuse. She makes it under, she makes it seem like she's under his will at the same time. Excellent leadership. Um, Haman is still pissed off by Mordecai and he has a maniacal need for honor and respect. And it's coupled with this absolute power that he's won under Xerxes. And so his fragile ego still gets hurt every time Mordecai doesn't bow to him. He gets the advice from everybody that they should, that he should be hung on the gallows. He makes a gallows just for Mordecai, the king, 
in such serendipitous, crazy circumstances, he ends up reading about Mordecai and what he's done. He honors Mordecai with the very honor that Haman wants and Haman's wife and brothers and, and, and advisors and friends say to him, if, if there's anybody that is, that will be your downfall, it will be Mordecai. And then Haman and Cersei's go to Esther's banquet. And so that's, that's where we're at right now. This is like the pinnacle of action. It says here that just with the most like innocuous, like seemingly innocent statement, then Cersei, oh uh, no, then, then Ahasuerus and Haman went to Esther's banquet. Just sounds like somebody went over to have dinner, right? Um, and they have this whole feast. They have this whole feast, right? What's really interesting about feasts, um, it refers to eating and drinking on special occasions. So this motif of feasting is very important. Um, a feast of Purim at the end of the chapter comes out as the Israelites remember how God had delivered them in the time of Esther. But this concept of a, of a feast is, is like the primary motif um, of like honor, of, you know, the lavish way, uh, the Persian way. And so there's this huge thing and, and, and she does two feasts, um, the first feast, and this is the second, and they do this whole feast. They spend the night, the next day they're drinking wine. Sounds like a great feast, you know, a party that goes into the night, into the morning. And then in the morning, they still, they still feast in, you know, um, I'm not saying anyway, uh, I am just describing Persia. Obviously Persia is not, you know, a sparkling paragon of Christian life. I'm just saying it. It sounds like a party. Um, and it was a nice, a great party, a, a lavish party. The Queen Esther hosts. Obviously, the king is really, really happy with it, very pleased with it. And he asks her again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? What is your request? I will give you half the kingdom. He's saying, whatever you ask. Seriously. He's like, all right. I, okay. This is your, our second banquet. But seriously, Esther, whatever you ask. Whatever you ask, what is your petition? What is your request? Now, the interesting thing about the book, the English translation is that the word petition and request are obviously two different um, like words. Request is um, a wish that somebody grants. A petition is when you are in need for something and somebody needs to grant you clemency or mercy. It's kind of different where request is a desire and petition is kind of like connotes this need for mercy, um, somebody to change your situation, right? Um, but actually in the Hebrew, these are derivatives of the same word and it's like desire. So it's talking about Esther's desire. Like, what is your desire? I will grant your desire. And so she replies, she says, my petition, and this isn't actually as clear in the ESV. That's what I, uh, that's what I realized for the book of Esther, the ESV isn't the greatest translation. I think it's clear in the NIV or the NRSV when she says, like, my petition is to spare my life and my request is to spare my people. What Esther is doing here when she says it like that is she's tying together the life of her people and her life. She's saying, I am no different. My life is no different from my people's life. My petition is to spare my life and my request is to spare my people's life. And she ties together her life and her people's life together. That is the first time that Esther does that. You have to understand Esther up until this point has tried her stinking best to fit into Persia to the point where nobody at this point knows that she is a Jew. Nobody knows that she's a Jew right? And she has gone unnoticed. She has so much favor and there's this edict against the Jews and she, she comes out. It's like a coming out, right? That she's actually a Jew and not a Persian woman. She claims the identity that God has given her before the very person that can kill her and save her. So it's like a moment of proclamation. It's a moment of reclamation. It's a moment of, you know, reckoning to her actual identity and 
a final moment of like this fusing together what she was in the closet and outside. Finally, she is one. Esther and Hadassah becomes one woman under the will of God in this moment. This is like a side thing, but when we are, when we are, when we claim, some of us might live as Sunday Christians. As Christians, we have one will. Outside of Christ, we might want to live another way. We might want to follow a different set of rules, or we might feel like we have to in order to conform to our field, to our friends, whatever it may be, right, in this world. But when you follow God's will and his purpose over your life, the person on the inside and the person on the outside becomes reconciled under the will and the power and the, this, the love, the mercy of God. Those two things become combined. Um, I'm not like an outward condoner. I don't, I don't want to give any, I'm not like an outward condoner of, of, drinking obviously but like I think drinking is actually a really good example of that right uh sometimes we might feel like we can't be we have to be one way in church and one way outside now I'm not saying get lit with everybody that's not what I'm saying okay I'm not saying that at all but what I am saying is the person that we are like you have to reconcile that under under what God is asking of your life under your convictions to follow God's will under your convictions, you have to reconcile your life outside of Christ and your life with Christ. You can't compartmentalize those things and get away with it. You'll split. You'll split into like five different versions of yourself. And which one is you? The person that is you is the person that God sees. It's the person that God not just calls, the person that God loves. God calls us once he has seen us. Once he has claimed us, he calls us, right? And in, on, in, his in his claim, we can reclaim who we are in him. That's why I'm a big proponent of just like honesty, even if that means that your life is messy, even if that means that your life is broken, honesty is really important. Um, and here she finally goes, I'm a Jew, I am, this is who I am. And she comes to terms with who she was in Christ or in God and outside of God, and it combines, right, into one. One messy person, one imperfect Christian, an imperfect outsider, but one person that God loves and sees, right, as his own. And we see this reckoning that happens for her. And she ties together her life and her people's life. From going from, I don't know if there's any way to help my people as they're about to die, to this, it's huge. And in that moment, what happens with Esther in that moment is that's when she becomes queen. From this moment on, we see her be a spiritual and political leader of Persia, of her people. If the Jews are under the empire of Persia, as queen, she is monarch of the Jews. At this point in her life, put it another way, put another way, this lady is queen of the Jews. And this is the moment, this is the moment where she becomes queen of the Jews. When she finally reconciles her life outside of church, outside of Jew Judaism and inside Judaism, as she finally becomes one and claims her identity as God's, she becomes monarch of the Jews. And we see her, she fuses together and is an excellent leader. One of the wisest examples of monarchy in scripture in this moment of holy war, okay? Uh, so that's, we see here a reconciliation of her identity. We see here um, a broken woman being elevated by God. We don't see here, like, I'm not saying, look, repentance is important and sin is sin. I'm not saying that good and bad all gets thrown out the window. What I am saying is that the love and the mercy of God is what leads us to repentance. It's not that repentance leaves us to God's love and mercy, right? And we don't necessarily see here repentance in Esther. We don't necessarily see a turnabout. 
She doesn't all of a sudden like throw off her queenly robes, throw off her lavish life, and then run into the wilderness to become a Levite. She doesn't do any of that. She just claims God. Where she's at, she claims God. She no longer lives a double life. She claims God as her own. And that is the moment that she is elevated as monarch of the Jews. One of the only moments in scripture where a woman is the leader of the Jews. This broken woman. Very, 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 very like nuanced stuff here. Um, and I don't know how that applies to your life, but if that's a word for you, that's a word for you. Don't forget that word. Don't live a double life. It is not worth it. I think there's so much to be said about who Esther is and why Esther had to be the person that she was as monarch of the Jews in this time. Um, but, you know, once she claims this, Cersei's is angry, right? Once she claims this, Cersei's is angry. And it's, it's not, he's not angry at her. He's angry at not just the man that did this to her, but the position that he's in. At this point, Cersei's does not realize that she's referring to the death order that he signed off on. You have to understand here, at the same time that Esther is claiming herself and being elevated actively, she is also engaging in very, very high politics right now. So she's using the same wording as, as Israel's edict, but with a passive voice. And we see that she's doing the circumventing, like she's going around King Cersei's edict in such a way where King Cersei's does not realize that it's his edict. Clearly he was the one to sign off on the Jews being dead. She has to do the complex task of getting King Cersei to lift this without saying that it's his fault. Ultimately, it's his signature on that thing. But she has to somehow get around that so that the Jews would be safe and her life would be spared. And she uses the passive voice to do that. She says the Jews have been this. The Jews have been like sentenced to be killed. Like she doesn't say by who. She just says, my, I and my people are in grave danger. By what? I feel like that's a very reasonable thing to say, like, because of this edict, we are in danger. But that would be, that could, because the king is so defensive, and like, one of the things about a strong sense of ego is that the greater your pride is, the greater your defensiveness actually is. And so she, she has to go around his defensiveness, right? And so she can't actually make it feel like it's his fault. That's what defensiveness is. I don't know if that's a word for anybody, but defensiveness is, is when you feel like you're being blamed for something that you're not ready to take responsibility of or that you didn't do. Either way, the king is very, it's very highly likely that this could go wrong. And so she uses the passive voice to do that. Another example of this very, very smart rhetoric is when Nathan the prophet is tasked with the difficult task of, um, he's tasked with the, with a difficult role of calling King David out on his adultery and murder of Uriah and taking Uriah's wife Bathsheba as his own, like textbook sin, do not murder, do not covet your neighbor's house, like textbook sin that David engages in as a man after God's own heart, which is very egregious. And, in, and Nathan does it by explaining another story, gets, gets King David righteous, like indignant and, and, thirsty for justice before pointing out, hey, that was what you did, right? And it's a very, it's a very precarious situation that Nathan the prophet is in because King David can just order him to be dead. You know, when you call out a absolute, like a leader in absolute power for what they've done, that, that's really, really hard stuff. There's no democracy, there's no fairness. It's just you and this person with a ton of power, right? And so the only other time in scripture where we see this happen is Nathan the prophet. That's, that sermon is preached incessant times, right? And so we see that here. We see her being one of the smartest rhetoricians of her era, right? Extra, extra smart. And so she goes around his defensiveness by first arousing indignation before revealing that he was the one to do this. And Cersei's is angry because this is the woman that he has committed himself to. I mean, he has a ton of other women in the harem, but this is the woman that is his wife. And she's about, and she's talking about somebody that is doing her wrong, doing her dirty. That's a direct, like, 
That is a direct offense to his own life, right? Because they are in union. And he goes, who is he? Where is the man, right? In English, it kind of dumbs it down a little bit. I know it sounds really strong. But actually, in the Hebrew, these words sound like machine gun fire. It's like he's angry. And in the original language, you can really hear in the consonants, you really hear his anger. He's pissed. The fury is expressed. And then she gives a, it's toned down, like I said, it's toned down a lot in the English, but she actually gives an equally as convicting and also short response, a terrible evil man, Haman. That's the moment when Circes realizes he's angry at Haman, but he knows that he's not without fault. What does he do? He gets in an enraged quandary that leads him into the court courtyard. And he's in a dilemma. Somebody, um, Dr. Fox, in his commentary, he reads the question circulating in his mind. He says, can he punish Haman for a plot he himself approved? If he does so, won't he have to admit his own role in the fiasco and lose face? Moreover, he has issued an irrevocable law. How can he rescind it? So the king is stuck in a dilemma. That's the complexity of what Esther is pointing out here. She is putting the king in the tightest spot ever. Because now he has to take back what something that he said, which he will lose face over. Can he punish Haman for something that has his signet on it? It's not possible. So you, he goes into the courtyard. He's fuming, angry. His wife has just tied her life to the people that are going to die. And it's this really, really complex situation. Now, Haman is in a really difficult situation. He can either run out and talk to the king, he can run away, or he can talk to Esther. Haman, realizing that the king is going to do whatever he can to put, put him at blame for all of this, he doesn't run out to the king to ask for mercy. He doesn't run away because he, know he knows that's not going to do anything. So what he does is he um, begs Esther. What's so wrong about that is that Haman is blatantly breaking, egregiously breaking palace laws. Harem protocol is that no one but the king can be left alone with women of the harem, let alone the queen. Even in the presence of others, a man was not supposed to approach a woman of the king's harem within seven steps. So number one, he's not supposed to be left alone with Esther. His direct action was supposed to be to run out to meet the king or to leave. He shouldn't have stayed behind with Esther to begin with. Rule number one that he broke, and that's him breaking a law of intimacy of the king. And then secondly, he's not supposed to be within seven steps of this woman, but he falls on her, on her chair, on her couch to ask for mercy most definitely he's not trying to harm her in this moment that would be he would be have to he would be have to be out of his mind but he does the unthinkable twice approaches her and falls if it's her couch you can imagine she's sitting down and he's falling right and the king walks in from the courtyard just in time to see them. And the king's dilemma is completely resolved in this moment because what Haman does here is worthy of death on its own, let alone what he is doing to Queen Esther. And so it's an unthinkable action that Cersei's conveniently puts a spin on. In the NIV, it says, will you... Will you even molest my woman in my house? Jesus Christ. You know, it's just, he really did that to him. He really did that to, he really did that to himself. He really did that to himself. I don't know, you know, nobody knows what he was thinking. I'm sure he was terrified for his life. But we also see his pride here. It's the king's woman. We see his pride here, that he's so willing to break palace rules because he thinks he's an exception, right? And then Harbona, the eunuch, nails it down on the coffin. 
When Harbona suggests that Haman be hanged on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai, and he verbalizes as the Mordecai, who had, by the way, saved Cersei's life, Cersei's concludes that Haman perhaps have had secret sympathies with his attempted assassins. So this fine point of court politics is like, that's it. Not only has Haman issued this order, not only has he stayed in the room with Esther, not only has he fallen on Esther's couch, on top of that, he was trying to hang the man who had saved the king's life. And Cersei's puts a spin on that. It's high court politics here. This is politics. This is complete politics. Cersei says, oh, that's enough grounds to say, oh, this man must have been against what Mordecai was doing. And in that moment, Haman becomes on the same teams as the murderers who were assassinated, who were killed. We see it's like a lot of grasping at straws to listen to Esther's request, but it's a lot of politics happening at the same time. Another series of really unfortunate events. Just like how last time there were a series of fortunate events. And this is how we see Haman fall. He gets hung. As soon as the word leaves the king's mouth, his face is covered. He is killed. His 10 sons are killed. His advisor is killed. And all of Haman's house goes over to Queen Esther. Now it says the gallows. There is no adequate wording in the Western context for this um, weapon or this method of government killing. Um, but it's not actually where, you know, there's a noose and he's hung. Actually, there the Persian gallows was actually a giant wooden stake that uh, people are impaled on and then hung impaled. So what happened is Haman built a very, very big stick to impale Mordecai. And then he dies on the stick he built. Um, impaled. You know what an impaling is, right? Yeah, he's impaled. Um, and the Mordecai is vested with all the power and authority that was previously wielded by Haman. How? Esther says, he's my uncle. More reconciling. We see here a woman. We see here a, a girl turn into a woman and then a woman turn into a queen. As she claims her identity in Christ, as she claims her identity in God and all of that becomes reconciled and she comes out, God is with her. And Mordecai, her uncle, is given the honor that Haman was given. Then she cries one more time. Four times she asks, if, if, if I have found favor in the king's sight, if I please the king, if the king thinks it's right, and if I am pleasing enough to the king, four times, would you give Mordecai the power to reverse your edict? She, using tears, very, very excellent rhetoric, like complete, literally the small girl becomes a, an excellent leader. And she wields her power perfectly with the perfect amount of feelings and weeping and wording. She gives Cersei's a way out of his dilemma. And she just covers it with, as her request, towards a king who is gracious to her. So the king is not wrong. He's just doing his queen a favor. He's not rescinding anything. He's listening to his Esther. And this, she offers the king an out and he takes it. Mordecai offers a counter edict and the Jews go from weeping and mourning to dancing. Now one might wonder, cause this is a lot of like, complex characters here. It 
there, there's a lot that goes along with this edict because this edict is not just an edict to undo the king killing off all the Jews, but actually Mordecai writes in the fact that the Jews are allowed to, that the Jews are allowed to attack and kill, that the Jews are allowed to attack and kill any person that comes against them. Now, I want to address some of the moral gray areas of this story because there's, you know, a holy war is complicated, right? Why doesn't God show mercy to everybody? Why? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll take it step by step, but I, I just want to address a couple of counter questions that you guys might have to this passage. Um, the first thing, you know, that you might be wondering is, Jane Doe, why doesn't Esther help the king to pardon Haman? You know, she, she silently looks on. Why? Is that a character flaw here? You see, like I said before, when Esther claims her identity in Christ, she becomes monarch to the Jews. She's a queen over all, including the Jews. And this, this is the interesting thing about scripture. Because the Old Testament is a generational story of how God has saved his family. Right? Actually, Esther is making good on a command that God had given to Saul that Saul failed. See, in 1 Samuel, the Amalekites had tried to destroy the infant nation of Israel shortly after they left the land of Egypt. Because of this, God instructed Israel's first king, Saul, to attack and destroy the Amalekites, sparing not even women and children. So there is a very big similarity between the edict of the Jews and actually God's command for Saul. But Saul was to not, he was to spare not even, not even one of the Amalekites and show no pity. But when Saul had the opportunity to kill their king, king of the enemies of God's people, he spared his life instead. And as much as that might be an act of Saul being a good man, it is while Saul was being a man of his own moral authority, Saul was also being a prideful man that was not willing to listen to the authority of God. There is a difference between a mor being a morally good person and a person obedient to the Lord. If you trump what you think is right over God, over God's call for mercy for his people, over God's love for his children, over anything, anything it might be, if you think no, if you, if, you would, if you and I would dare to put our moral authority over the command of the Lord, it's a difference between a good man and a godly man, right? And Saul here fails to honor God's command in the midst of obeying his own thing. And so when Samuel hears of Saul's mercy on Agag, the enraged prophet Samuel kills Agag in obedience to God, God's command, but according to rabbinical tradition, not before Agag slept one last time with his wife. The son that was conceived in that last, that last union had a descendant generations later named Haman, who turned the power of Persia against the exiled nation of King Saul. Because of Saul's failure, the Amalekites continued to plague Israel throughout its history, and it shows face nearly, a, like literally a thousand years later, or maybe like 500 to a thousand years later, right? Still plaguing the Israelites. So that moment of disobedience, as much as we're like God, I know this is what you said, but I don't think you're right here. You know how we have those moments where it's like, God, I know this is what your word is saying, but I don't want to do this. Guys, there's always a reason for why God says to do something. Right? And that one time that Saul disobeyed led to this whole moment. And Esther, descendant of Saul, is the woman to make good on the command that God had given to Saul. And that's why maybe y'all missed it, but it actually claims Haman. First, it claimed Haman as, you know, like 
the Agagite and, and whatever, it, like it claimed Haman as enemy of the Jews, but actually at the end of all of this, it actually claims Haman, even in, even in the ESV, it claims Haman, the last identification of Haman is the Agagite. Where God is clearly making a, he's clearly pointing back to 1 Samuel. Isn't that crazy? That one last union with his, lot, with his wife led to Haman many years later. King Saul had failed, and Esther was a redemption of his failure in that moment. As queen of the Jews. How beautiful is that? Because she's no paradigm of authority. She's not supposed to be Persian queen. She's Hadassah. She's not supposed to be any of that. She's a woman that barely wanted to be known as Jewish. And she, this broken woman, this woman that does not always do the right thing, she is the one. She is the one that God uses to make good on his promises. Now, some of you guys might also be wondering, there's also a moral problem of the counter edict. Is, is Mordecai writing that the Israelites can just attack people that they don't like that have hurt them before? Is this a moment of like, vengeance is mine? Right? Is this a moment of like reciprocity of violence? No, it's actually an edict of self-defense. Um, the writing is very clear where it says that the Jews are allowed to attack anybody who is attacking them. So this is a moment where the Israelites are finally allowed to defend themselves. Previously, they were not allowed to defend themselves against the violence that was coming to them. But this was a moment where God protects his people and allows them to defend themselves against the danger that is imminent. We see a moment of, I didn't read it, but we see in chapters eight through nine, we see a moment of the Israelites going and storming their attackers. Now, should we be doing the same? Does holy war still exist? Is God still like this? My answer is actually not vague. It is definitive. And the answer is no. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of holy war. Christ comes into a situation of holy war as a sacrifice. Instead of fighting our enemies, Christ dies for his enemies. Instead of, instead of, like Christ is the true and perfect Haman here. Unlike Haman, a prideful man who goes kicking and screaming to his death and falls under foolishness to his own pride, Christ is, a, is our God who does not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but humbled himself even to a cross. He ends war on sin with his own life. He achieves victory. The word victory, we always say we are victorious in Christ. That is the end to holy war because holy war is against God's will and it's against God's people, but Christ is victorious over that war. That war, not only against, because it's not against flesh and it's not against authorities, it's against, it's against sin and death. And that's the victory that Christ won on the cross. That's the victory that we talk about. Victory, that's warrior language. When we say that Christ has won the victory, we are saying that he is the true and perfect warrior that has won our holy war. So no, reciprocity does not exist anymore. Obviously, self-defense is a thing, but there's no such thing as holy war anymore because that is what Christ overcame. The layers of Christology here to what Christ overcame our perfect, humble king, whose kingdom is not of this world, who relinquishes authority, unlike Esther, relinquishes, who uses her authority to save Israel. He relinquishes his authority in order to save Israel. Unlike Haman, who holds himself to pride, he humbles himself and dies on the cross. Once and for all. That is the structure of redemptive history. 
Because of our sin, we are not living in the Garden of Eden where the Lord walks and talks with us in the coolness of the day. Rather, we live in the exile of history in a world where God is unseen. The sentence of sin has pronounced a death sentence on us and Christ, just like how those small coincidences that God had orchestrated, that God had lit in Circe's path to help the kingdom of Israel, to make good on a promise that he had started in the time of Saul, in the infant birth of the nation, during a nation's exile, just as God had made good on promises to preserve Israel from 2,000 years earlier that he had made to Abraham, I will, dis I will bless the nations through your seed. Just as God is making good on things that he had started generations, centuries ago, God was making good on his plan for us. And because there's a limit to what holy war can do, there's a limit to sinful people being used for sinful things he decided. The word of God through whom everything was made. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, everything was made. And nothing was made outside of him. That word became flesh. To make good on his Genesis 1 promise. To make good on his promise to the people that he loves. To his beloved creation. And he said enough is enough. And he killed that war by dying. Not as a victim of capital punishment but as an active agent who showed up innocent to pay for our crime. What can we take away from all of this? The first thing is the power of prayer. We saw in Jonah his prayer in the pit. His thankfulness to God that he was like, when Nineveh repented, he didn't even repent. A hard, stiff necked older son that was an Israelite, but yet could not let go of his pride for what he wanted, his loyalty to his people, to his morals, to what he thought was right. That could not follow God's will went kinking and screaming. And yet, God's mercy even for him in that power of prayer. Here we see a woman who is unwilling to see God, who is unwilling to walk in what God has for her, who is broken by her circumstances. She is fatherless at this point, an orphan that becomes, that gets an opportunity to be rich and she takes it. Who has sex out of wedlock in order to marry a man who relinquishes all her honor as a Jewish woman, a, a woman that God sees, a woman that God claims even in her greatest moment of shame. We see this woman claim her calling and she rises to her occasion and the nation goes on fast. Is Esther a political figure of redemption? My personal, my personal exegesis of all of this is actually that Esther is a spiritual figure of redemption. I believe that tomorrow's victory is won in tonight's prayer. As we break before the Lord, as we break at his feet, tomorrow's victory is won in tonight's breaking before God. We often have to break in before we break through. We see Esther claim something she would never have claimed as she prays. She calls a fast.
In their prayers, Mordecai and Esther mention Abraham, the exodus, circumcision, the temple. They plead with God to deliver them even as he had delivered their ancestors. The ancient plea of their ancestor Moses. And they stand, Esther stands as a spiritual leader of her people. But not just her, actually Mordecai as well. Esther and Mordecai go hand in hand here. Mordecai points out what Esther really is to her in this moment where she gets so confused, so sucked into the world that she forgets who she is in Christ. Mordecai's like, remember God. It is Mordecai's wisdom and his spirit that speaks to her spirit and reminds her in that moment. And then it is Esther who elevates Mordecai in return all as they pray. There is power in prayer. And the power is often not just outward. Outward stuff, that's all within God's power to change. But the internal stuff, that's what changes in prayer. Your heart is what changes in prayer. External stuff, God has complete control over us. Internal, our hearts, our will is what changes in prayer. Are you having a hard time coming before the Lord? Then pray. Are you running away? You've run away so far in your actions. You've lived so much of a double life. You don't even know who you are anymore. Pray. When was the last time you prayed? You don't know what, you're call the, what God's calling is on your life? Pray. I guarantee you, your family, your significant other, your, your vocation, those things are not your calling. The goal is God. I might love my family. I might have great loves in my life. My goal is not the people I love. For all that I am broken in, for all that I suck at, that is the one thing I'm glad I never gave up on. There is power in choosing God over the things that you can see. There is power in walking in faith. And that power starts in prayer. It was during prayer that God gave Esther the strength to walk by faith. She could have died. She could have died. In the passage that we read, she could have died. It was the prayer beforehand, the three days of fasting beforehand, where God built in her the character to walk and, and acknowledge God before things had come to pass, to thank God for the breakthrough before she had seen it come to pass, to thank God for the victory before she had seen it come to pass. That was one in the prayer. That was one in the prayer. Man, somebody, that is for somebody. That is literally for somebody. Have y'all been praying? We don't gotta be in the same space to pray. Even if everything else fails, even if the whole world falls to dust and ashes, we have the Lord. The Lord is greater than the beginning and the end of the earth. What are you setting your eyes on? Success, marriage, family, all wonderful things, but not greater than God. Pray. Are you having a hard time with your double life? Pray. Are you having a hard time understanding God's calling over your life? Don't stop praying. Don't get discouraged and then run away from the Lord. That is fruitless. Fruitless. Stop avoiding and pray. Acknowledge him, acknowledge God, acknowledge God. Because at the end of the day, what did the prayer help Esther to do? Claim God. Esther needed three nights of the nation fasting to claim God. And then the Lord, the spirit of the Lord filled her and she, and he did the rest. We often need prayer to claim God. Pray. You're having a hard time claiming God in your workplace, in your family, in your life. 
pray. Don't run away. As cliche as that sounds, as not cookie cutter as that might be, maybe y'all might want more practical advice. Unfortunately, I'm not God. I cannot do any more than point you to God. Be willing and open in your prayer. We also see here Esther and Mordecai's partners. I mentioned that a little bit before. Esther was both queen and Jewish, effectively making her queen of the Jews during this crisis period. Because Esther willingly shared her power with Mordecai, he wore the signet ring of the Persian king, effectively making him king of the Jews. Neither Esther nor Mordecai had the power or position alone to deliver their people. It was only as they acted in concerted power and authority that they were able to lead God's people through the crisis of death into deliverance. Neither of them aspired to the role, and perhaps neither of them deserved it. It was thrust on them by a series of improbable circumstances, largely beyond their control. Nevertheless, their unlikely partnership accomplished God's ancient promise, and the Jewish race was preserved. We often need each other. God doesn't often call one person to do a giant task. There are a lot of improbable circumstances that puts us in a position that we never thought we would be in. And often it is the joint power that God gives in broken people that allows us to walk into what he has for us. So if you are in a spirit of independence right now, I alone am called to do this. I want to gently, humbly, and firmly ask you to reevaluate why you need to be the only one. People are often partners in ministry, partners in life, partners in faith. God values community, even in this. You are not meant to do this alone. You're not meant to do life alone. Who the heck told you that other than yourself, honestly? You're not meant to be okay on your own. Nobody asked you to do that, actually. Who, who asked you to be, for everything to be okay in your life on your own? Who, who expected that of you? Isn't that just what you want? And yet God paints a picture of a very different form of leadership. Another point of application that leads us to today's sermon title, had they not. Had Mordecai not reported the assassination plot on Cersei's life, he would not have later been given a reward had Esther not been Cersei's queen, Mordecai may not have been credited for his loyalty. Had Mordecai not refused to bow before Haman, the crisis would not have happened. I'm sure that when that edict came out, everybody, I'm sure there were people that blamed Mordecai. I'm sure. Had you just been humble and bowed before Haman, you stiff-necked Jew Mordecai, this would not have fallen upon us. Had Mordecai not refused to bow before Haman, the crisis would not have happened. But had Esther refused to please the king in his bedroom, there would have been no one to intercede for her people. It's crazy. Even the mistakes, even the moments of shame, even the things you're not proud of, even the moments where you were broken, God is doing something in your mistakes. He had never expected for you to be broken. Even in those actions, God is doing something. Had Esther not been who she had been, she would not be able to intercede for her people when the time was right. Yeah, maybe it wasn't the perfect thing to do for a Jew. But can we believe that God is greater than our mistakes, than our sins, than our shame, 
than our brokenness? Think of the thing that you are the most ashamed of. Is God not greater than that? Is his plan not greater than your greatest shame? Can God not use even that, especially that? Or is your God so small, so merciless, that he cannot forgive you? Mordecai had persuaded Esther to go uninvited into the king's presence to plead for her. But Esther had devised the strategy of forcing a confrontation between Haman and the king. Esther acted. Esther acted on her conviction. Had Esther not acted on her conviction, we can pray. This is, oh God. Whoa, was not ready for that. Okay, Holy Spirit was not ready for this. Had Esther not acted on her prayer, that prayer would have been buried in the ground and the Jews would be dead. God is convicting you to something? Is he scratching in your heart? Is he knocking on the door to your heart and you're like, God, and you're like, you pray before him, but when you walk the next day, you don't live in that conviction. That is how you bury that conviction in the ground. Had Esther not acted, practically acted, practically wisely asking for the wisdom of the Lord, asking for the Lord to light her footsteps. Had she not walked into that prayer that she prayed, Israel would not be alive. Had Esther not identified Mordecai to the king as her close relative, Mordecai would not have worn the king's signet ring. Had Esther not claimed the parts of her that she's ashamed of, had Esther not claimed her immigrant uncle, had Esther abandoned the first generation, Mordecai would not have been given that signet ring. That decree would not have looked like that. Had Esther abandoned her parent, Israel would not have been where it was. Even at the very end of the book, it is difficult to separate Mordecai's rule and authority from Esther's. It's a successful relationship, a partnership. But had they not, been who they were, and had they not reconciled their identity. Because what it really is, all, what all of it really was, was that Mordecai acknowledged that God was greater than Haman. Esther acknowledged that even in her brokenness, even in her shame, God was her Lord. God was greater than Circe's. Had they not, had they not. Some of us have convictions that we are not acting on. This is your sign. You needed a sign to do something? I don't know what that prayer is. This is your sign. Stop sitting in your prayer and not carrying it into action. Walk in step with the promises that God has given you. Claim God. That's all anybody's telling you to do. We're not telling you to part the Red Sea. Nobody's telling you to do a miracle. Nobody's telling you to save the nation of America. Claim God. Claim him. Claim him. This is your sign. You have a conviction. God is cleaning you up on the inside. He's telling you he wants this thing that you've been holding on to so tightly. Claim God, claim God. Your greatest pain, your greatest idol, your greatest loyalty, claim God. Give it to the Lord, give it to the Lord, give it to the Lord. Walk into that prayer. You're like, God, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? You hear the Lord knocking, you're like, I don't wanna hear it right now. 
Because as much as you're praying, you don't want to listen to what God has to say. Claim God. Claim God. Walk into the promises that he has for you. Walk into whatever convictions he's doing for you. He is yours and you are his. And that's okay. It's not meant to be easy. But he is better than the greatest thing this world has to offer you. And that might be the calling. This, I hope, I hope that there are people in our congregation today where this, this is the calling that they needed. This is the word of encouragement that they needed, exhortation that they needed to finally give that thing to God. Had they not, had they not, And as you sit on that conviction, I leave you with a final encouragement that God is in our midst. As you wrestle with these things, even if we are not perfect, God still fulfills his promises through us, through our greatest mistakes, through our greatest victories. God fulfills his promises. He doesn't judge you in the way that you judge yourself. He's not hard on you in the way that you are perceiving others to be hard on you. God is not done with you. He fulfills his promises, not because we are good, but because he loves us. So walk by faith. Claim God. Had they not, in the midst of their brokenness, had they not been the broken people that they were, had Esther not been who she was, had Mordecai not been who he was, this deliverance would not have happened. What if God is using you because it's you? Because that's what you've been through. Because that's what you're struggling with. Because that's who you are. God is using you. So give your greatest idol to God. I don't know what that is. But if you have felt a conviction and you have not been praying because you don't want to deal with that, Who knows if you were called to be in this space, listening to this very word for such a time as this. Who knows? Let's take this moment to pray. Before we start this prayer, I apologize. But it's possible that God just, he's not giving up on you. Where are you at? Do you have any convictions that you have not walked into? Are you leading a life in and out of the presence of God in your heart that is different? Have you, have you even misjudged somebody and Esther in your life? listening we hope you were blessed by this week's message for more information check out our website at mbkmc.com